night. This morning we are looking at third day living as our children depart and have a great experience in kids' worship. And I'm in 1 Peter again. The more I read 1 Peter with the mindset of the resurrection, the more I think that Peter actually wrote his epistle from the point of view of the resurrection and how it changes your thinking. Over and over again, he mentions explicitly the resurrection, and it seems to me that you could argue that this is the core, the center, and the approach of 1 Peter. I'm starting in verse 22 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, if you have your Bibles, and I'm going to read into chapter 2, okay? And he says here, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I had a unique experience yesterday after being off sugar for 11 days. I'm sure you can tell. They put a creme brulee in front of me. Now this is really seriously my favorite dessert. At least close. And so I thought I was going to take a bite. So I took a bite. It was great. It was delicious. I had to take another bite. Ate the whole little dish of creme brulee. That was the end of my fast from sugar for 11 days, although I'm going right back on it. But uh, I also broke the fast with uh, some uh, breakfast burritos over here in this Sunday school apartment that they insisted I eat. So, but I'm telling you, taste is a powerful sense, isn't it? And to taste that the Lord is good makes you hungry for more. You have tasted that the Lord is good. Dale Markle, my dear friend who's now in heaven, stopped me in the middle of the church years ago and said, it changed my life, David, when I learned and realized that God is good. God is good. We read this scripture in the context of the goodness of God, his personal goodness toward us, not just the theoretical goodness that covers all things in the universe, but the personal goodness of God on my behalf, in me, operating on a daily basis. You really can't come to this text and understand what the Apostle Peter is trying to do 
unless you know the goodness of God and it is anchored in your heart. Now, the title is Purified, and you saw the word. You have purified yourselves. Purify with obedience. We purify with obedience. The minute you hear the word obedience, some of you are thinking about the checklist, the moral code to which you go, and the details of your faith and what you can do and cannot do, the things you check off when you think about obedience. But when Peter says, you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, it's like the truth is in a capital T. And he's reflecting back upon all that he's been talking through in his introduction in this letter. He's been talking to them about how God has saved them and rescued them, and they have been redeemed. They have been bought back by the Lord. The, the price has been paid, not with dollars or euros or rubles, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so he is thinking about obedience to that truth. And the highest and first obedience that God demands of a human being is the obedience that responds to his call to repentance and to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. So Peter is saying, you're purified by your obedience to this truth. This truth purifies you. The truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In Peter's view, to really be purified, you must have this very sharp, pinpoint focus in your life on what is true and good and the goal of your life, and it is Jesus crucified, buried, and risen again. In the resurrection, you find the first movement of your heart toward purity. The repentance which God calls for us to perform in responding to this truth is a repentance that turns from all alternative ways of living my life to the one that confesses, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So repentance is turning from the old life, the empty way of life, a life that may have involved a lot of religion as it did with Peter. When that sheet came down in Joppa full of those strange things, Peter could say, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. What a claim for a long life where the religion controlled the diet so profoundly he had never eaten anything common or unclean. Strictly obeying those dietary laws. Is that something you could say? You've probably not been as strict in your religion. And yet Peter had to turn from that way of life that was, that was dominated by self-righteousness based on keeping laws to the way of life that is anchored in Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and risen again. 
This is how God begins the purification process in our hearts. He sanctifies us first by opening our heart to the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. This is the first movement of purity. And we repent of the empty way of life that was perhaps handed down to us by our forefathers, maybe intensely religious, maybe intensely secular. This approach to life, this process we previously used, we turn from it, that's what repentance is, and we step into Christ, dead, buried, and risen again, and this is now our life and our perspective. Purify with obedience to this truth that changes everything about life. And purify with agape. Now, you're familiar with the word agape, which is used here in this text. There's one for sure evidence that God brings forth in the life of somebody who confesses that Jesus is Lord and has been raised from the dead, and it is love. Love is the supreme command and the supreme quality of God and the supreme calling of the disciples of Jesus. They will know we are his followers by our love. Now, love has its own purifying process in the heart. And when Peter first says here, you have a sincere love, he uses the word Philadelphia. Phileo is familial love, and the Delphia part of that is, is brother. So you've got brotherly love. And then his, his encouragement is, now, I want you to agape each other deeply from the heart. You have a sincere phileo for each other, but I want you to agape each other. This contrast between phileo and agape is interesting in the New Testament. You've heard of agape love because that's the love God loves you with. God so agaped the world. He so agaped me that he gave his one and only son. Now, everybody on the planet knows a little bit about phileo. You're supposed to love your brother. You're supposed to love your mother. You're supposed to love your children. Family love, that happens in all family circles, all cultures, all places. It's not uniquely Christian, but the word agape is applied to the love of God, which is unconditionally given. When Jesus encountered Peter by the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection, and Peter's seen the risen Lord who has just fixed him breakfast. You remember, and he says, come and dine. And they sit across the fire. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. <laughs> I don't know all that's involved in this, but I will say this. There should be an intentionality in your love that intensifies it beyond anything you've experienced before as you trust Jesus as the risen Christ and begin to live out your love for him in this world. Intentionally 
We must love each other deeply. We need to practice it. We need to remind ourselves daily that love is the mantra of the Christian life. And if it is simply family love, and we naturally love the brothers and sisters who are sharing the way with us, who, who have gone down this path of obedience to Christ with us, then we need to deepen that into the unconditional love that God loves us with, that lays down its life on behalf of the other. This love is costly. This love muscles out a lot of other things in your life. And when you realize what the demand of love is, you realize you're not going to get everything else done that you thought you might do and love like this too. At the table last night at the rehearsal dinner, a conversation was going on between two young adults at the other end of the table and I was overhearing a young man talk about his brother and his wife who had just adopted a child that was one year old and he began to talk about the foster parents and the process of those foster parents who had held that baby since a few days after the baby was born for the first year of its life the process of those foster parents delivering to the adoptive parents this baby they have grown to know and love. And Ben was so impressed with how painful it was for these foster parents to give this baby away. I listened to the story. I was not part of the conversation until I realized what was going on. And then I just offered and said, it's my belief that foster parents love so much they invite suffering into their lives they don't run from the pain they don't run from the sorrow they realize in all likelihood this baby will go away maybe back to its biological mother or maybe to an adoptive parent and even realizing that and all the emotional attachments that the family makes with this child they still are willing to dive into the trouble and heartache of children in our culture who, over no fault of their own, are abandoned and hurt and in danger. And they care for these little ones. It is a beautiful thing. And every time one of the foster children in our community of faith runs up and gives me a hug, I thank God for the families who are willing to step out into this place of celebration, joy, and pain and sorrow and take care of these children who are the virtual fatherless of our generation. 4,700 of these kids in the state of Louisiana who are in need of a foster home. It's, where, it's why my heart is with our Crossroads NOLA ministry, you know, because I just believe pure religion is with the fatherless, with these little ones. And there's something about the love that takes that child in, that volunteers and says, I will help that child who has no place to go.
There's something about that love that is like the Father's love for us. It purifies because you only have so much time and energy and emotion, and yes, you could spend it all on yourself. That's true. You could say, it's my life. Or you could say, the life that I have is a gift from God, and I'm going to give it away. Somebody said to me, the thieves who beat up the Good Samaritan said, yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. The thieves that beat up the man who was by the side of the road, yours is mine, and I'll take it. And the two religious guys that walked by said, mine is mine, and I'll keep it. And the Good Samaritan is the fellow that says, mine is yours, and I'll share it. I like that. Agape is the kind of love that says, mine is yours, my time, my resources, the energy God has given me, and I will share it. And I will say to you this, the purification process in your own life is connected to your service of love to other people. And God will so enhance your own life. He will bring you to a new level of living. He will use you in a way that you will look back and say, the hand of God was upon my life through all these times. Thanks be unto him. If you will share your life and in so doing love as God has loved you. Purify with agape. It's expensive. It's costly. It's messy. It's painful. But it makes your life more like the life of Christ Purify, too, with identity. Peter says, you're born again. He uses the term born again. It's the second time in this first chapter that he says you're born again. And he uses a little compound word that's only used here in the New Testament, these two times. On again, though. You are born again, he says. And there's a communication about identity in this new birth. You have a new identity when you're newly born. God does something marvelous to your heart and your mind. Peter reflects back on it. You were born, he says, into a living hope into an inheritance that cannot decay or pass away, reserved in heaven for you. You arrive in a whole new place. I think about that little baby, Kate. Have you seen a picture of Kate, Kelly and Jeff's new baby? Look at the doting sisters and the grandmother, all smiles. But what's that on Kate's face? She's startled. She has just arrived in the world, and she's been for nine months in a very comfortable, warm bath. And now she's out in this cold world, and it's a shock to her. And she's got her mouth open saying, what is happening? Because birth is that way. It's a shock. 
And Peter says, you have been born into something. Kate was born into this atmosphere where she was starting to breathe and feel other temperatures and all these kind of things. And when you are newly born, you are born into something brand new, into this living hope you never knew before, into this inheritance you never had before. You got a new spiritual DNA when you are newly born. You got your old DNA from your biological parents, and your DNA unpacks all through your life. You know, it's nine feet long if you stretch it out. It's in every cell in your body. It's amazing, and it dictates how you grow and how you develop in so many different ways. That's the DNA biologically, and it unpacks throughout your life. Well, the spiritual DNA you got when you were born again, when you had this new birth, also unpacks throughout your life. It's a new frame of reference, a new way of being, a new development for you, and a w new way to develop as a human being. You are in Christ. He is the risen Lord. This is your mindset now. You got the brain in your first birth, but sometimes you need to install a new version of the operating system, right? I got this old iPad down here and I couldn't even call up the order of service this morning because the memory's not big enough. I know eventually I'm going to have to replace that iPad because it's going to get outdated and there'll be an operating system that just won't fit in it anymore. You get errors and it moves slow until you get your new operating system. When you have the new birth and you believe in Jesus who is dead, buried, and risen again. When you believe in the risen Lord, the tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive, never to die again, that gets in you a new operator. So you've got new software in that brain. You're thinking in a different way and approaching life in a different way. Peter says here, you have been born again, not of this perishable seed. That first seed was perishable. And we are doomed to die physically. You have been born again of an imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. God has done something fresh and wonderful in you that lasts forever. You are born into this living hope, this great inheritance laid up for you. God has done this for you. Purify yourselves with this new identity you have in the new birth, this new DNA spiritually, this new software for your brain, this new seed God has planted in your life, the very Word of God. He is doing something wonderful in you. He is developing you as His own child. God is your Father. You are His child. And you live in this identity it's a wonderful place to be and then we get to verse 2 with its or, or verse 1 chapter 2 with its therefore all these things are true God has done so many things therefore purify with I'm just going to call it simplicity there are in the Christian life some things to rid yourselves of I don't know what your list would have looked like if you had the opportunity to speak to the entire church and say, I want you to get rid of some things, brothers and sisters. What would have been your top six or eight 
things to put in this text. Or what does Peter and the Holy Spirit put in this text? Rid yourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. That's what the Holy Spirit puts in the text. What do I need to get rid of? God, I need to get rid of these things. I don't want you to go to the rid yourselves unless you've been to the purified yourselves of verse 22, okay? Therefore, when you see it in the text, you need to think what it's there for. All right? Therefore points back, you purified yourselves through the living, enduring Word of God, through obedience to the capital T truth, to confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart God raised Him from the dead. You purified yourselves with that. Look, it doesn't help anybody for you to go to the rid yourselves without having already gone to the purified yourselves. Because the rid yourselves just become a list that become frustrating and difficult to do. It's just hard to try to clean up your life yourself. You've got to be anchored in this place where Jesus is Lord and he has risen from the dead and he is living in your life and then you can go to the rid yourselves I like this word hypocrisy that showed up in this list it troubles me in my heart that sometimes in some spheres in my life I hide the truth of my new birth from people who need to know Sometimes I put on a mask and pretend I'm somebody I'm not because I don't want to talk about the new thing God is doing in my life. Sometimes I don't want to pay the price for identity with Jesus. And any pocket or place in my life where I'm walking along and parading that I'm not connected to Christ and I'm not sharing my identity with Christ when I have opportunity, that's hypocrisy. That's not the real you. You're betraying who you really are in Christ. And he who died publicly for you in every sphere in your life wants you to be willing to publicly identify with him. And if you live your life in such a way that you are conformed to the behavior and image of Christ, then people are going to ask you about this hope that is in you. And when that happens, don't be a hypocrite. See, people think that hypocrisy is me being lost, wicked, and a sinner and come into this church to worship. Hey, this church is full of sinners. I'm telling you. There are many days I don't feel worthy to stand at this place. Sometimes my sin is ever before me. It's right here, like David said. It's not that we are sinners. That's not the hypocrisy that's mentioned here. It's that we are not living out the lordship of Christ in the way that honors him and the way that love for him demands. 
and so betraying who we really are. Our real identity is in Jesus, but sometimes, be honest, we hide it. And that's hypocrisy. Sometimes we practice malice toward the people we are supposed to love. And that's intentionally seeking to do them harm. That's not love. That's against God. Sometimes we are full of envy and all we can think about is why other people's have and we don't. Why other folks got promoted and we didn't. Coveting the things they have. And Peter says here, rid yourselves. Rid yourselves of these things and just long for the milk of the word so that by it you may be strengthened in Christ. Rid yourselves, but not before you've purified yourself by obeying the truth. I go out sometimes into our little garden in the backyard and I'll cut roses and put them in a vase. I like them, but I cut them for Janet and I announce it to her, okay? <laughs> I went to get some roses for you, put them in the vase and uh, they pop up over and over again and, and I enjoy them. And every once in a while I got to go back out to the garden and cut some more roses and bring them in and put them in the vase and throw away the wilted ones that are losing their petals on the table. You know about that, right? See, if you cut the rose, it will eventually fall to pieces. And if you cut the blossom of your life off, from the root system, which is Jesus, dead, buried, and raised from the dead, your life, too, will fall apart. In other words, you can't do the rid yourselves part unless you've done the purified yourself part. You can't live the life that is described in this letter unless you have the living relationship with Jesus who has saved you by the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. You just can't do it. And if you try to follow the rules without having the new birth, it's just another empty way of life. And so the scripture calls you to trust in the Christ who is dead, buried, and risen again. Place your life in him and be purified by obeying this truth, by loving as he loved, by identifying with him, and by simplifying your life to the lordship of Christ. Let's bow together. Maybe somebody in the room feels like a flower and the roots are cut off and things have been falling apart. You've been trying to obey the rules, but you can't get there. Would you search your heart and see if there's a root system in you? Have you ever trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord? Have you committed your life unto him? Has that happened in you?
The scripture says, as many as receive him. Did you have a moment where you received him? The scripture says, if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in him, has that moment happened for you? God, I pray today that nobody in this room will try to live a life without having the living Christ resident in them. And God, that you would help us understand all that is involved in knowing Christ and serving him as risen Lord. God, help us be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.